Hello and welcome back to Elevate Ordinary. I'm John Mark Grodi. And I'm Teresa Grodi. And we're back with another extraordinary conversation about the ordinary pursuit of truth, goodness, and beauty. Uh, today we're talking with Adam Lane Smith, who's, uh, I think I have your bio right, uh, licensed psychotherapist turned attachment specialist. That's your, that's your shtick, right, Adam? That's my exactly right. right. <laughs> and we, we have a bunch of things we want to talk about today. Um, but before we get to our topic and to our, our really cool guest today, I want to remind you, if you go to elevateordinary.org.com, uh, I don't remember which one it is, uh, you'll find more information about the show as well as archives and information about the patron community and Awakened Catholic and all the other good stuff there. So check that out. So we're joined today. We're excited to be joined today by Adam Lane Smith. Uh, and I'm going to turn it over to him to, to, well, we'll start with that. Adam, tell us a bit about yourself, what you do, what you're excited about, if you would, sir. Absolutely. So I am an attachment specialist and people ask what on earth is an attachment specialist? I was a licensed psychotherapist for a lot of years. And uh, when you do that, you can only be a therapist in one United State at a time. Uh, so I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I had so many people internationally asking me for coaching other States. I terminated my license and now I coach internationally all around the world. The really big thing that kicked me over was I was saying no, no, no to people. And then a big celebrity family found me on another podcast and said, we need your help. And I said, I can't turn that one down. So that was the one that, that finally kicked me over. And uh, people need help, man. People need help with attachment. And the, that is yeah. what I do all over the earth now is teach them and coach them and work them through those problems. That's my whole job. That's awesome. And we're excited to dig into that concept a bit today. It's something that I think we've, people have heard. We certainly heard it in different circles uh, earlier in our marriage and I, it, the presentation is very different some stuff I've heard from you so we're excited to dig into a little bit I wanted to, to, to mention that we sort of connected in what I'm affectionately calling dad Twitter I, I was about to drop off Twitter about a I think about a half year ago, I was ready to be just be done with Twitter because just it was just too negative, and I, I had I had built and accumulated a timeline that was not helping my life, and I had unfollowed everybody, and then I started encountering a handful of these accounts like yourself and others, just these other dads out there, some of them Catholic, uh, like, like as we are, so, uh, uh, some Christian, some just sort of vaguely wanting more, but they're guys who just wanted to be better husbands and fathers and they wanted to get their life together. They wanted to get, you know, get alcohol or drugs, whatever it was out of their life. They right. wanted to get their families together. And it was a really positive space. What, what, have you encountered that? Like what, what what's your presence oh, there? Yes. What's your sense? Oh, oh, when you say dad Twitter, I understand. I'm some of those guys are near and dear to my heart. I think of yeah. Zach Small. I think of Jeff Putnam, um, Joshua Lysak, those guys that just talk about fatherhood and they just gush about how great fatherhood is. And uh, I was just watching Zach Small live stream last mm -hmm. night about that. It's dad Twitter is big and it is taking back the internet, the ugly parts of the internet, and it needs to get <laughs> even bigger. So I hear yeah. you. Yeah. One of the things I really value about being Catholic, um, I think throughout throughout human history, Catholic theology, Catholic philosophy, uh, by its very nature, it is ready to embrace the the true, the good, and the beautiful wherever it finds it. So you go out into Dad Twitter, you know, or any part of the internet or any part of the earth, any other, you're going to find a lot of people who are very different from, the, from you. But as as Catholics, when we recognize you know someone speaking truth doing good, trying to make the world a little bit more beautiful. We can appreciate that. We can learn from that. We can uh, affirm that. And that's what I've found. Just a lot of guys there, again, many of them very differently than myself. Uh, many of them, I'm sure we disagree on some things, but boy, they're, they're men who challenge me uh, by their lives. And I've been really encouraged and affirmed by that. And so to see you uh, working in that space and helping some of these guys uh, has been really encouraging as well. So <laughs> 
Cool. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be able well, to do that. <laughs> let's dig into the attachment stuff. That's a word. That's. <laughs> uh, so this is not gotcha journalism. <laughs> Good. <What? laughs> Just start off by saying that. Cool. So up until John Mark shared a recent video, well, maybe it wasn't recent for you, but I think it was like explaining what attachment is. Mm. The only time I ever came across attachment was attachment parenting. And mm. it really like wreaked havoc in my life. I mean, like to the point where I think I was smooth sailing, doing pretty well. And then it, I just tanked mm. um, with a lot of like, mm like almost arbitrary limits put on what is attachment parenting and then like mom guilt, like all rolled up into one. And it was like, I almost couldn't function yes. like a normal human being anymore because someone had told me about this. And I was even kind of like, it looks nah, like this, I it don't means know. X, Y, and Z and only that. But because and, it was know. in my head in the middle of the night and you know, sometimes they talk about nighttime brain is like not the same as daytime brain, <laughs> you know, especially when you've got a little baby. Mm -hmm. But just like these, like the bad mental habits that I would cultivate in that period of like, I know I can put her down and she'll be just fine, right. but maybe she won't go to heaven if I don't it like continue. Like this was, it was just, it was not yeah. good. Um, it took me a while to climb, climb out of that or just to recognize that I had built bad habits um, based on like fear and guilt. And I... I kind of just like put attachment. Anytime somebody would say attachment, I just like put it in a box and I'm like, that's not for me, <laughs> you know? Yep. And then he shared a video with me yep. and the way that you described it is just like so much of what we've already discerned in parenting, you know, where our own wounds mm -hmm. are, you know, from parents, from God, well, obviously not a wound from God, but a, a, a wounded way of viewing God, Relating you know? God, yeah. um, yes. Or like, uh, the way that we're interacting with our kids and seeing our failures in them and being like, oh no, like I've kind of broken that relationship, you know? Um, like it, it felt like coming home, like uh, seeing that video. And um, I just want to say thank you. Uh, and I'm kind of, I'm excited to. So, so, so we yeah. have some baggage with the term and sure other people yeah. do. That's no, what we wanted to And start, that's why I'm like, mentioning it because. Yeah, what? being an active mom with like a lot of other active Catholic moms, there's like that attachment parenting drop off. Um, where like everybody crashes and burns for some whatever reason. And then we climb back up out of it and we're like never doing that again, but it's very common. And that's why I wanted to mention it yeah. so that if we're hearing people, if like people out there are being like, Oh my gosh, attachment parenting, like, Oh my gosh, Oh my gosh, yeah. Oh my gosh. Maybe it's not what they, what they think. maybe it's not what they think. So, and yeah. So I so want to put that it? out there right away. <laughs> There's the softball. There you go. hundred <laughs> percent. So what is attachment, right? Is that the question? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I'll make it real simple. I will make it real simple. Really simple. Attachment is the way that we give and receive love with other human beings. The way that we connect to them and form a mutually fulfilling circle of love and care with another human being, believing that they genuinely love us, that they will do the right thing for us and themselves, the, a good faith interaction. It's the belief that we can trust them and relax because we're not going to make a mistake. It's going to ruin everything and we can be bonded securely. That's what attachment is. It's the way that we give and receive love securely mm -hmm. in a relationship with another healthy human being. That's all it is. 
And the goal is not perfection. Anyone who I'm familiar with the circles you're, you're, you're talking about that just grind you into the ground and make you feel like a worm for not doing it perfectly. The point is not perfection at all, ever. Anyone who tells you the point is perfection, no. And no, you're not a hair's trigger away from ruining your child's attachment. That's no, no, no. Attachment Whew. does not require you to be perfect. You can never be perfect. Never, ever, ever. So give that up. Don't even try. <laughs> what you need to do is build a self-correcting family system. That is all you need to do. You build a system mm. where your children know if they make a mistake, they can come back and talk, talk to you about it. They can come to you without you ruining everything. And they not, they're not going to ruin everything. The family's not going to get destroyed. They know if there's a concern, they can bring it to you and you will listen to them and respect them and listen to that concern and deal with it as a team. It's the belief that your family is a team, that you genuinely love each other, and that you will work for the good of all individuals involved. That's what you need to create. You will make mistakes. You will have bad days. You will put the child down and say, oh no, I ruined their attachment. You will have those moments. And You'll have moments where you snap at your kid or you say something very wrong and you say you're disrespectful of them. And you know what? Attachment doesn't say, oh, no, you've blown it. It says, well, to get the best result and build a self-correcting system, I need to talk to my child and apologize for what I did, explain why it happened, explain how it's not going to happen again in the future, build some accountability, and correct the system. That's all it is. That's, that's all that the attachment journey needs to be. No perfection. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. Our, our little girl came to us the other day. And this breaks... Like, I come from... We talk about this a lot where a lot of parenting, I don't want to make this all about parenting, but a lot of parenting stuff to me doesn't look like my ethnic background. (laughs) It doesn't look um, Eastern European. Okay. Like lots of shouting, Mm -hmm. lots of, I love you. Like, like shouting with like, we deeply care about one another and you're never outside the family and there's nothing you could do that could ever, but like a lot of yelling, you know, a lot of physical slapping, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and like a lot of times when you read parenting books, I feel like, like I, like I, like I have to put myself in some kind of like weird mental trip to like, or acrobatics to try to make this parenting thing work for me. Um, but when I was listening to your description of it, I was just like, no, now I see why it was total. It made total sense to me to see, a matriarch slap the kid upside the head and what's the matter with you? You know what I mean? But at the same time, like that kid's always there for Sunday dinner. They, you know, their parents opinion means everything to them, you know, like and not in a really negative way, you know, but it's like, you're always part of that family and you have security in that family. Um, yeah, sorry. I, I went off on a tangent again. <laughs> It made no, sense that's to me exactly, when I started, and that's what's important. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> Every family is going to be a little different. Some families will be a little rougher than other families. Some families will be a little louder than other families. Wherever you start, you got to heal. you got to remember that a lot of Western families and a lot of Western parenting tips are not built for the health of the child. They are built to make the parent feel good about being a good and friendly parent. There's a lot of that going on. It's, mm-hmm. it's not healthy parenting. It's friendly parenting. Um, be aware of that. Mm-hmm. Weed out, weed out the good advice from the bad advice. No matter what they're telling you, there is a massive ocean between abusing your child and being completely a doormat for your child. There's a huge ocean in there. You, again, you don't got to mm-hmm. get it perfect. Mm-hmm. Get it 
self-correcting. Yeah. So the child can come to you when they're 15 and say, you know what? I'm not real sure about this interaction that we had. Let's talk about it. Let's fix this. You say, oh, yeah, okay. Let's talk about this. Let's Instead of shutting them down and saying, you are the problem, I'm the adult, you don't get to question. No, you say, okay, yeah, let's talk about it. Okay, how'd that go? Wow, that, set, that hurt your feelings. Okay, don't say, man, I'm sorry you feel that way, but that's your part. No, you say, okay, what are we? What what can we do as a team to help you feel better about that interaction? Because the lesson needs to stand, but I do not want you hurt from that. How can we as a team come together to manage those feelings? That right there. That is neither authoritarian nor permissive style. That's what we call authoritative mm. style in the middle of I am the authority, but I genuinely love you and you can question as much as you need to. Let's work on this as a team. Let's build this trust. That's what you got to do. That's it. Don't let anybody else try to tell you exactly how to parent. Just parent that way so that the child loves mm. you and knows they can come to you. Everything else takes care of itself. I love the notion that you said earlier of the self-correcting family system. In other words, you know, we're all trying to, to figure out like the right routine, the right schedule, the right rule of life for ourselves and as individuals and as a family and like trying to, to zero in on like, what are the most important building blocks of that rule of life as a family that makes it self-correcting? Could you talk about some of those kinds, like what, what are the things that we would focus in on? Uh, so that we're a family that's building attachment as a couple and, and as parents and children and being able to mend that when it's injured in the course of family life. What are some of the, th the things that, that sure. families do that do that well? Sure. I'll make this really simple then. Really simple. Instead of 50 different rules to remember, do this. Every time you go to act as a parent, stop and ask just for a moment. Am I about to act upon my child or am I about to act with my child? Mm. Now, there's times to act upon. If they're in front of a speeding train for some reason, you got to yank them off the tracks. Mm -hmm. That's one moment. That is one moment. Like they're about to die. Okay. Life and death, literally life and death makes sense. But if there is a case, like let's say I'll take my five-year-old son for this, for example, um, he loves to sneak. He loves to sneak out of his room. We put him in bed. He loves to sneak out of his room and, and be a ninja and try to go around the house. We put him back in bed. He sneaks out again. And it's, it's not adorable by the second or third time he has done this, right? You put him <laughs> back in. You say, it's bedtime, buddy. Okay, dad. And then he's sneaking out because he thinks it's hilarious. By the third time, it is not adorable. And a lot of people at that point would melt down and just, why do you get the, and, give, and, and just, I'm going to do this. Oh, you're, I'm sending you to live with the circus. I'm tired. It all whatever all kinds of things parents do <laughs> if you are about to act upon your child to punish them to hurt them to take to make yourself feel better to take out your frustration to manipulate them and make them stay in bed if you are about to make them do something by emotional force you're acting upon them remember that when you act upon them they begin believing that acting upon other people is okay they believe that's okay. And if you do that consistently all the time, that's all they know. So when you have an attachment issue, you go out in the world and you act upon people the way you were acted upon. You act with your child. So what I do when he's, it's the third time, I sit him down and I say, okay, buddy. And I, and I let him see on my face how frustrated I am. And I say, you see my face, how frustrated I am? He goes, yeah. I say, okay, 
it's it's not because you're being a bad kid. It's because you need to go to bed and I'm tired and it's bedtime. Your mom is tired. Our whole family right now is getting very tired and I need you to go to bed so then we can get rest and tomorrow we can, I can do great at work and we can spend time together. I can read you those books. Your mom will be healthy because she has all these kids to take care of. This is your role in the family and this is how you can help take care of us. But it's also how you make sure you don't injure our relationship and frustrate me because this is the third time I've had to tell you this. I need to know I can trust you when I put you in here. Can I trust you and do you understand? Yes. Okay. And by the way, if you stay in bed, I'm going to have plenty of energy tomorrow to play with you. So do you want to get out of bed and sneak around for 10 minutes and make it worse? Or do you want to stay in bed and then tomorrow we have hours of good playing? Oh, I want hours of playing. Yes. So it's your job and you're taking care of us and it's about trust. And you're going to benefit from doing it. Stay in bed. He will not even answer. He will roll over and go to sleep within 20 seconds. Like that fast done. Mm-hmm. That is acting with. Now you have to be in a good mental place to be able to do this. You have to you have to get rest yourself and not be a complete mental case. Um, and it takes practice. And you don't always get it right. Sometimes I act upon. And sometimes I act upon. And I go to my children and say, I'm sorry. I should have talked to you. That's not the right thing you do did i make a mistake yes yes i did okay here's what we're going to do to make this better and i work with them and that is the difference Mm -hmm. if you can work with your children you are building a self-correcting system the more often you act upon them the more likely it is you will damage the relationship once probably not going to do it a couple Mm -hmm. times you apologize for it probably not going to do it if the whole system is acting with and with and with That's the message you are sending and build that in so that when you accidentally act upon them, they begin challenging you on it and saying, dad, you don't talk to me like that. We're not supposed to talk to our family like that, dad. He will tell you that on a day if I'm really grumpy out of left field and don't understand it. He's like, dad, don't talk like that. That's not nice. And I, oh man, (laughs) you're right, buddy. I'm sorry. And there's no, but I'm sorry. You're right. Okay. Here's how we're going to do this. And that's what you got to do if you want to build a family system where your kids love you and trust you and bring your grandkids around you and your great grandkids around you and you build a healthy family system, you act with instead of acting upon. Is that simple or what? I like it. Mm-hmm. I like the acting with and acting upon. I mean, one thing we talk a lot about this show, one of our kind of our underlying themes is talking about the virtues and vices yeah, as a way of again, a classic Christian way of understanding the whole integrated human person. And, you know, obviously like the end goal of, of parenting is not merely to control, it's to help them grow in virtue so that they can go out and and be their own people. And so acting with as much as possible means that you're, 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 you're inviting them to take the action. Again, as you said, sometimes it just has to happen. Get out of the way of a speeding car. Don't touch the stove, that kind of stuff. But that doesn't actually uh, cause any growth. Sometimes it's necessary, but it doesn't cause growth. But uh, inviting them to make a choice, inviting them to 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 make a decision, to make to choose between two things, to to step forward, you know, is helping them grow in virtue. Right. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Acting upon is where the wounds happen. So you look at the Gospels mm-hmm. and you you ask yourself, how often did Lord Jesus act upon people, and how often did he act with people? Very rarely did he actually act fully upon people. It was very much, I am here to work with you. I am here to act with you. Let Mm -hmm. me talk to you. That's what he did. It was a 
conversation, an open, frank conversation where he would be honest and he would tell people what they needed to hear and they would ask him questions and he would talk to them. Even his enemies, he would talk with them and act with them instead of acting upon them as much as possible. (laughs) There were a few moments where he was like speeding train kind of moment, like get out of my temple. Do not be, don't, don't do your money changing in here. All kinds of, but most of the time he acted with, he acted with, and that's the role model, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Uh, Let's pivot a bit and talk more about the marriage side of this. I mean, Mm -hmm. where, um, I mean, so a tweet, let me read one of your tweets that you put out today. I think (laughs) Uh bears on this. Um, and made me <laughs> made me think of a lot of what Teresa and I have talked about. You wrote, uh, so often a couple will fight and bicker not because of what is going wrong, but because they are not spending time bonding and being intimate. Build emotional intimacy into your relationship to yeah. prevent all the stupid little fights. We've noticed that a lot, mm-hmm. that when, when we're beginning to have tension and stuff, we realize, wait a minute, that's not really the issue. Talk, talk about what you were getting into there in that tweet. <laughs> that is very true. True. When we fight about the garbage, we fight about the toothpaste, we fight about the milk. It's not about those things. It is an unmet need that is usually either I am tired of being acted upon or I am tired of you pulling away and not acting with me so that I'm acting alone. And sometimes it's Mm -hmm. just plain I feel lonely and I need a deeper connection. It's usually one of those three. Acting upon, not acting with, or feeling lonely. And all three can be resolved. Emotional intimacy is what does it. Emotional intimacy builds that. And what is emotional intimacy? It is, it's it's that attachment circle. It's a mutually fulfilling circle with the other person where you both act in good faith. You trust each other. You can be completely open. You know know that one mistake won't get your head bitten off. You know that the other person will ask you questions before they react negatively to something. So you'll have a chance to make up any mistakes you make. And you know that the other person will meet your needs in good faith and you will meet their needs in good faith. That's what emotional intimacy is. It's the ability to do that and express Mm -hmm. that at the same time so that it's perceived on both sides. That's love. That's emotional intimacy. You must feel that. It sends a cascade of chemicals through your brain. Oxytocin, vasopressin while you're solving problems together. Oxytocin while you're warm and, and nurturing and bonding. Serotonin is a big this. When we have emotional intimacy, big moments with people we love, that cuddling with someone we really like, holding hands, the hugs, we get a rush of serotonin. We should be getting that all the time from our relationships. We often don't. And that is a huge marker for depression. When the serotonin is low, that's when depression creeps in. That's when we start the bean counting in the marriage. That's when we start picking at every little thing is when the serotonin and the oxytocin bonding are low. You need to build those up with with those emotional moments, those emotionally intimate moments, I should say. I love that. You know, this past hundred years, well, not hundred years, less than that, uh, since John Paul II's theology of the body, there's been a renewal in Catholic circles of recognizing that we need to, our, our, our spirituality can't be angelistic. It can't be, um, it can't leave the body out. We have to see, kind of see the whole picture. And, I, and you, I've seen some of your videos talking about, you know, some of the neurochemicals here and recognizing that like we can over spiritualize some of these types of things or, or make them merely mental when sometimes it's, it's a merely a physical thing, mm-hmm. you know, that it's part of marriage. It's part of that marriage relationship mm-hmm. that you, you don't just be physically intimate. You know, you, cuddling, holding hands, stuff like that. When you feel like it, you do those things in order to help build and restore that connection. That Sometimes we're putting the cart before the horse. We're waiting to feel good before we connect when actually we need to connect in order to get back to a place of connection. 
Correct. Mm. If that makes sense. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the emotional intimacy should guide all physical intimacy. Emotional intimacy should come first. Mm. In so many marriages, people don't even know what emotional intimacy is. And the wife will say something like, can we please spend 10 minutes talking before we go to the bedroom? And he's like, why? That's the emotional intimacy. The emotional intimacy should bring the physical intimacy into being and then should also be there on the other side of the physical intimacy so that nobody feels used. Emotional intimacy should be the the blood that flows through your marriage all day long. And the physical intimacy is just outgrowths of the emotional intimacy. That's that's how it's supposed to be. Hmm. Yeah, we found that like a lot of times when we hadn't been connecting emotionally Mm -hmm. um we would it would be date night and then we'd have this huge fight (laughs) and the fight was like the best thing ever you know (laughs) like we i i almost like i almost note mentally note like our growth in our relationship by fights (laughs) and by postpartum periods like by (laughs) fights and by after which baby we picked back up again yeah you know um because Oh, I lost my train of thought. Sorry. Again, babies. <laughs> <laughs> well, we also always talked after those two that like we, we, we have to figure out how not to wait until it spills out and, you know, forces the issue. And I guess that's, you know, yes. something to talk about there. So like if everybody needs to work on this, but what are, again, what are some of the, for a couple that knows they need to work on it or maybe they need to work on it real bad. I mean, maybe they, again, they may, maybe they talk to somebody like you that might be, where they need to be, but in terms of their daily life, in terms of their habits, in terms of the, the self-correcting family system, what are some of the things, uh, the, the maintenance tips, I guess, for that relationship that you'd say? Oh yeah, big time. So usually the reason that a lot of us grow after big fights and, and difficult periods is because we finally hit a point where our brain says, I've been holding these things back, but nothing could possibly get worse. So I'm just going to let it go because at least it won't be worse than this. And we let out what we needed to say, and then our needs get met because the other person had no idea what was going on. We provide context, and then we begin working with. Oftentimes, after a fight, in the midst of a fight, what we actually would call an argument. Fighting and arguing are two different things. Fighting is trying to overcome and win. Arguing is trying to negotiate, persuade, and work with. So arguments, even while angry, arguments actually bring out the pieces we meant to say all along and maybe didn't know how to say or were too nervous or anxious to say because we were trying to be nice. We're trying to keep the peace. It's the worst thing on earth that you can possibly do. (laughs) Teresa, you had talked about Eastern Europeans just slap it upside the head, say, what were you thinking? Sometimes that is the healthiest thing because it lets it out. And then the other person's yeah. very honest right. and the other person could deal with yeah. it then and say, okay, yeah, here's what I was thinking. Well, stop it. <laughs> Think this way instead. Oh, that yeah. makes sense. And then you get it out. Well, I'm being, if, if it's she just very... sits there and says, Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's very cliche, but maybe it's cliche for a reason where you see like the man or the woman. Okay. In, in some kind of, um, play or something like that who is like really sad kind of emotionally abused and then he meets the big fat greek wedding family you know (laughs) and he it brings out a side of that woman or that person you know that you you didn't have before Mm -hmm. and it's it's very healing um the the last time we had a big fight this this was a while ago argument sorry (laughs) i'm always fighting um (laughs) the last time we did was because i tried to be 
somebody that I wasn't. Like you brought out 200 small little blocks and put them in the toy room when I was nine months pregnant. And as it was happening, I was like, this is a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. And I was like, maybe I'll just let him, you know, and not because he's dumb, but because like, I, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to step on those and I'm going to get angry and I can't bend over. And like, it's just, it's going to be a mess, you know, but we were rotating toys and I was like, I'll just let it be. And it seriously, it built up for like months into the postpartum period. And then we like, Mm. I got angry and that was like the root thing. And I was like, I wish I just said like, I don't want to be picking up 200 blocks and mad at you every time I do. Let's not put them out. But I was trying to be patient and Mm -hmm. calm. (laughs) Let you make just, I mean, I don't know. (laughs) I'm not overbearing in our relationship, but I am like a fire hose at times. (laughs) I hear you. Um, What I tell couples is this. The best, the best tip is at least once a month, go out and have a meeting where you discuss the state of the marriage, right? State of the marriage. I tell people, I also tell people that this way, if your marriage behaviors, if you were running a restaurant together and running it the way you're running your marriage, would your restaurant survive? Would you be barely scraping by or would you go bankrupt? Do that assessment. Do the restaurant assessment on your marriage. If a restaurant would go belly up, if the front of house wasn't talking to the back of house and they weren't communicating and there was just like, well, I'm just going to hold this in for four months and that doesn't work in a restaurant, you're going you're gonna to have huge disasters. If your restaurant wouldn't work, your marriage needs to change. So once a month, at least, at least once a month, go out on date night and say, let's talk about our marriage. How are you doing in our marriage? And that's a huge question. So what I also tell people is do this. Say on a scale of one to 10 right now, where would you rate your satisfaction with where we are as a couple? Not where I am, not who am I to you. Where are we as a couple? Your satisfaction of where we are as a couple. And they'll give you their number. The worst thing you could do on the earth is say, why is it that low? Why is it only a four? Worst thing you can do. (laughs) What you do is you say this. All right. That sucks. It's a four. Oh, okay. Well, I understand. I'm kind of at a four myself right now. What from your perspective then, here's the only thing you ask, what would make you go up one point? What what one thing could we do as a couple Mm. that would help you to go up even just one point? And with the other person, they'll list something that is seemingly small. It's like this one thing. Oh, this would be great. Okay. Okay. You don't ask, how do you go to 10? You say one point. And what's going to happen is you, just by talking about it, you are building emotional intimacy because you're not f- exploding. How dare you say that I put the blocks down? You know, you're saying, okay, the blocks is one thing. And then that's why you're at like a four because you've almost died eight times on the blocks. And where our children are mo- almost half orphans because of these blocks. Okay, we understand. You don't do that. You say, okay, I get this. I understand where you're coming from. That's unfortunate. We are a team, though. So we both need to deal with this situation. What would help you go up one point? Okay, it would be if we put the blocks in a different place. Great. Let's put the blocks in that. Let's shoot the blocks in outer space. I don't care. Put the blocks in the closet in a nice Tupperware container. Let's do that. Okay. The other person doesn't just go up one point. They go up three points because they have been heard. They can trust you. They feel like you resolved it together as a team. You get Then you get what's called vasopressin of resolving stress together as a team. 
your brains really like this person. They solve problems with me. Your oxytocin goes up because now you're bonding and you're sharing the experience. Your serotonin goes up. All of this goes up and you feel all lovey-dovey because you put the blocks in a different spot. And you will go up three points to seven out of ten <laughs> instead of four out of ten. That is how it works. You must have these meetings at least once a month. And if you're going through a difficult period, have them every single Sunday night. Sit down, pull out a bottle of wine and say, all right, what's your score this week? Where are you at? And you say, all right, I'm at like a six. Okay, well, how can we get you up one point? Let's do this. You are solution focused. You are honest. And you can see problems coming from less than a week away. Problems don't go on for months because you catch them every week Mm -hmm. during a rough period. Mm -hmm. You can do this as often as you want. You can check in every day if you want to, but you must check in at least once a month because think of restaurants. If they didn't check in at least once a month, they would go bankrupt. Like, well, we should have caught this six months ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's how you do it. Make sense? (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. That's awesome. Um, so another thing I wanted to, to then dig in there. So this, to show up even for that, I mean, and I, and I love that, that idea. And I love the practicality of, yeah, focusing on the one point rather than going to the 10, go to the one point up. Mm-hmm. Um, now to show up, to be, to build attachments as a couple and with your children, mm-hmm. obviously you, you, you need to show up yourself and the, and many individuals, that is the difficult part. They, they have brokenness. So there's a couple of areas there I want to ask you. One thing I was thinking about, uh, we talk a lot in our marriage, in our family, is that, um, I mean, attachment with God is a little different because we're not dealing with another physical human being, but our relationship with God stands underneath and sort of behind our relationship with our spouse or with our children. There's mm-hmm. there's a security there um, that if we don't have, makes it difficult there's kind of a cascade here, a cascade of relationships. If, if we're secure here, then we're able to give. If we're, we're secure with God, we're able to get, be available to our spouse. If, if we're secure as, as spouses, we're able to give that to our kids. Um, I'm not sure what I, I want to ask there. Like, well, I, I can. So, yeah. So I have issues with God. Okay. Maybe it's like being a cradle Catholic with Catholic guilt or something. But it's like, let me just give a really stupid example. And this might like help formulate a question but like as a kid I really liked my hair I still like my hair but like as a kid I really liked my hair and I always thought when I walk past the candles at the church God's gonna set them on fire because I'm vain okay (laughs) that sounds crazy but it's like it's like a growing up Catholic kind of guilt thing where there's like if I like this thing too much God's gonna poof it out of existence now obviously that's not God and I've learned this you know, but it, it is hard to get out of that mindset. And I, you know, I don't know, maybe it came from just how people explained God to me or movies or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, like how, like, how do you get out of this idea that everything, every time something good happens, like some, it's to set you up for something bad that's going to happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> to strengthen you for the bad thing that's coming. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Especially because I mean, that is people. the Bible. That's, it's the Old Testament. It's, yeah, <laughs> you know. It is. A lot. Um, yeah. The fear that God is going to act negatively upon you without much, without much warning at all, and that God is going to punish you for minor infractions by doing something serious. Yes, um, absolutely. That is attachment. I have worked through my work over the years. I have worked with so many pastors and religious leaders. I remember one specific pastor of a mega church coming into my office and confessing to me, Adam, I think God loves 
kind of loves me. I know know he loves everyone except me. And I'm teaching everybody, like thousands of people in this mega church. But I don't really believe God really forgives me completely. I think he tolerates me. And that is attachment. That is attachment. When the Bible talks about how your mother and father raise you and that you get you get your image you get your image of how god will love you from how your parents love you both of them both of right. them if one of them wasn't present that is a loud loud piece of, of information one of them is absent and one is showing up and really loving that's a 50 50 coin toss in your brain of if people will love you or not does god love me it's like 50 50 if your parents have generational trauma eastern europeans i'm thinking a lot of them over there and who came here to the united states and and north america um a lot of them have generational trauma where they know not to do the bad things but they missed a lot of the good things that were comforting Mm. that were nurturing that were reassuring they missed those so a lot of us have anxiety issues over the last hundred years attachment issues have grown worse and worse in the west i've charted it over the last hundred years they have grown worse in the last hundred years and they're generationally worse. Every family hopefully gets a little better each time, but then you have people who say, my parents are pretty good. They were loving. I had a good family. Why do I have this belief that God is just going to shoot me with a sniper rifle from the clouds if I accidentally cough while I'm sitting in mass? Why do I have this belief that God mostly forgives me but I'm going to have to live on his front porch instead of coming into his house. Why do I have this overwhelming feeling that God's love for me is so much less than his love for other people and that it's my fault? Many of us struggle with that, and that is attachment. The answer is to completely open yourself up to two to three other human beings and confess to them that you have worries, that you're anxious, that you you stress, that you try to be nice, that you try to earn approval, that you run away, that sometimes you just say things people want to hear because you just don't want them to be mad at you, that you're afraid of abandonment, that you're afraid of getting hurt, that you believe there's something wrong with you that's less than other people. And you confess that to them and ask them if you can build a loving relationship anyway. And you will receive their love and experience their love. And that will transform your brain at the very beginning. And then as you test it and continue experiencing their love, your brain pathways remap from nobody on earth really loves me. Everyone's tolerating me, even God. And I have to play the right game and perform and be perfect in every way, but I never can be. So eventually the jig is up. It remaps all of that to say, no, wait a minute. I've experienced real love with people. And if real people love me this much, that's how much God must love me is way more than that. That's um, And then you start experiencing that transformation. It is experiencing the love, which is why we are required as Christians to go out and love people, especially when they don't deserve it, but especially when they've never experienced it themselves. The transformative power of the love that we give transforms them and prepares them to even begin to comprehend that they could be loved by God. And many Christians have not experienced that love yet. That's so good. And I just love how that points to this, the integrated nature of our, our humanity and of our faith, right? That that it's through our relationships, as you said, with like with our parents and with our family, family members and friends, that's where we're, we, it's the school of virtue. It's the school of love. It's not merely spiritual or mental or emotional. It's also bodily. It's the whole package. And that, um, so, 
yeah, our ability to approach God. That's we, we, we learn that and we, we build that and we, we heal that. We work on that through other people. Um, it's just, yeah, there's, there's a lot there and it's really good. Uh, yeah. Um, we're going to get canceled for me saying this next thing. Oh dear. <laughs> okay. Well, better get it over with. Yeah, I know. Right. So, um, reflecting on like abortion lately, everybody, everybody in the world doesn't matter for in the United States is thinking about this right now. And when I was in college and still relatively pro-choice, um, I decided to take the devil's advocate position on abortion in my con law class. And I, um, I sought out women who conceived in rape and kept their children. Because in my mind, if you conceived in rape and kept your children, child, you're the only non-hypothetical. Hmm. Everyone else is a hypothetical. You know, like the people who talk about well, this poor woman who is going to have to be forced to look at a rapist child and the woman who was raped, you know, and then, you know, takes the morning after pill or gets an abortion. It's a real experience, but it's still a level of hypothetical. Mm -hmm. Like what would have happened if I had kept this child? What would have happened? And what I found from those women is that the love that the child gave them, and, and I mean, I binged, I binged psychologists, I binged, um, women who were open to telling their story. And I, I mean, I sat for weeks in like the basement of the college on the computer when we only had access to computers, you know, in computer labs. And I just binged these stories and, and the love that the child gave that mother, like absolutely changed their life. Not only changed the outlook of the rape, the trauma that they had experienced, but then began healing wounds that they didn't even know that they had, lifting them up in a way that they never knew that they could be lifted up. You know, because you, you shared your wound with that person and that person loved you back. Like every time I have a baby, it's like, it's like an elevatingly blissful experience. Like it gets more and more exponentially exponentially <laughs> blissful experience where like I I love I I open more I love more I take joy more in this little baby's face you know and and it, I mean it's just incredible it's absolutely incredible as someone who never wanted to have kids and thought they were gross <laughs> having my own like heals wounds that like I never even knew existed every time there's like that new face that loves you I mean, you, you, yeah. you noticed her smile the other day, oh, our yeah. littlest one, you know, when she looks at me, it's a different smile than anyone else. You know, yeah. it's very beautiful. Yeah. Um, let's yeah. see. I wanted to ask about. Canceled. Sorry. Well, yeah, maybe <laughs> that was good. <laughs> um, a couple of the of your videos that we've watched um, that I appreciated uh, again, thinking about showing up, you know, for your spouse, showing up for your kids, um, dealing with stress. Um, and there were a couple recently. There were one you you had a, a practice. Well, no, there are two videos. They had some similar content, but talking about the importance of strength training or prolonged. I think it was prolonged physical discomfort and stress. Could you talk about that connection? Because I think it's an important thing that gets left out. I, I think of a lot of these discussions when we think this is merely a spiritual a mental thing. I just have to figure out the relationship, but maybe there's like stuff I need to be doing for myself to help me show up better. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So when we get stressed out, when we have emotional events, if we have 
painful things that happen to us, things that scare us, things that upset us. We have two different sides of the brain that built are built differently. We have the logical side on the left, and we have the emotional side on the right. And as we become more agitated, the emotional side strengthens and pulls energy from the logical side and diminishes our functioning to fuel these big emotional storms. And you can see this in, in scans of people's brains when they have post-traumatic stress disorder. They go into a PTSD episode. It, it diminishes one side of the brain, and it's just like fireworks on the other side, on the emotional side. And this actively diminishes your ability to be logical and calm and to make long-term decisions. Because your long-term decisions over here on the left side of the brain, the wait a minute, these are my principles. I shouldn't do that. I will feel terrible. That would ruin this relationship. That would hurt this thing in five years. That would hurt this plan next week. The emotional brain only knows how to minimize pain and maximize pleasure for the next five seconds. And this is people say there's two different sides of me. There's the normal me and then there's the crazy me. This is crazy me over here on the emotional side. And when you have attachment issues... Your brain is often chronically agitated or at least very close to just like finger snap goes into an agitated state much easier because your brain thinks no one loves me. No one really wants me. No one really knows me. If anyone finds out who I am, they'll either hurt me or abandon me. I have no good qualities. Everyone around me is weird. They're not going to love me. It's, it's I am alone. And the only thing keeping me safe is being worried all the time to control everything in my environment, everything I say and feel and think. So you're just chronically agitated all the time. And then one little thing happens and you go sky high. And then you say things that are just that later you can't even remember saying because they're just so awful. That's why that's happening. So the only way out of that, once you're diminished logically and emotionally agitated, you can't just say, oh, I'm emotionally agitated. I should stop being agitated. This is a foolish thing. I'm going to make bad choices. No, you can't just logic your way out. And this is why when someone comes along and says, hey, Calm down. It's gasoline on the fire because then your brain says, I can't calm down. That makes me upset. Now I'm even scared because I can't calm down. And you're telling me I shouldn't be agitated, but I am. And that tells me there's danger and you're not helping. You're now in my way from taking care of danger. And then they get mad at you and just and it explodes. That's why that happens. What you need to do. Is intense, prolonged physical discomfort. So when I, I, I had a buddy call me. Not a buddy, I should say that. I had a coaching client, realistically. Uh, I just want to use their name. I had a coaching client call me a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago. And they got, they were in a situation where something just massively upset them. They confronted a past trauma and they said, what am I supposed to do? They were crying on the phone. I said, where are you at right now? Out of 10 out of 10? Where are you? I'm 12 out of 10. They're like crying into the phone. I said, okay, right now, wherever you are, I don't care where you do, where you are. Start doing jumping jacks. That's dumb. I'm not. Don't do it. Started doing jumping jacks. And then they were like, oh, until they were like panting and crying into the phone. Like probably felt like an idiot. And I said, all right, can you do any more? I can't. All right. Drop down and start doing push-ups. Confuse your brain. And we did this. We did this until they hit like nine out of 10. And they're like, oh, I'm like nine out of 10, but I'm still miserable. Okay. Back to jumping jacks. And, and you hit endurance phase and then where you just can't do anymore, but you have to because, and it's willpower. And that starts draining the emotional brain because the brain set, the whole brain 
behind the back, especially says something serious is going on with my body. I am moving and moving and moving and then strength training and then moving, moving, moving and then lifting. What am I doing? Something must be going on. I don't have time for feelings. Drains the emotional brain, restores Mm -hmm. full logical functioning the more you go into it. So this person, I was working with them. And after three more minutes, like I'm at like seven out of 10. Okay, keep going. Okay, I'm at like five out of 10. I'm pretty good now. Should I stop? No, because you're just going to spike right back up. Once you're doing this, you got to go all the way down to zero. Okay, I'm doing it. I'm at like three. And then we talked and they got down to zero. And it was like 15, maybe 20 minutes. It took them of doing this process from like freaking out, crying, like I don't want to live. I And like not suicidal, but feeling those feelings to completely calm and then say, and then I had a moment where they were just like, what was I doing? And then they started laughing because it was so absurd to them where they had been just 20 minutes before. Mm -hmm. That is the power that we have with our bodies overtaking our mental processes, but you have to know how to do it. That's what I teach people for. You do the physical pieces and you stress your body out and over and confuse it. And that drains the emotional brain. And that's how you that's how you deal with that. So when you're agitated, use the physical pieces. People that swear by cold showers, by the way, on Twitter, you've seen that. This is really what's happening is they pro- put themselves in it to endurance phase and then push themselves through endurance phase, drains the emotional brain. And then they start the, their day like, hey, I feel warm, calm for some reason. It must be the cold water. No, it's the brain reacting to incredible physical discomfort mm-hmm. and then draining the emotions. That's what it is. That's how you do it. Yeah, I, I love that. I think the first video I saw where you talked about this was when we talked about, I think you were speaking specifically to men, but I mean, it was applicable to everybody, uh, but the connection between mental health and strength training, you know, and and, mm-hmm. and you were, I think we were pointing out, at least my takeaway was that like, there's lots of reasons to have, you know, strength training and a good exercise program in your life. Um, uh, but one that you don't necessarily think of is that it it may, it may be this big, um, this big uh, axis for how you're able to manage your stress. Uh, and I, I would, is the other, is the opposite true? I mean, are our bodies is one of the reasons that we have maybe much of the stress and anxiety we do precisely because our bodies don't get what they're expecting in terms of physical activity and stress as something that they're naturally oriented to. I could see that. Um, so we get serotonin from cardio really good. We get serotonin also uh-huh. from lifting and things like that. We get serotonin from hugging and warmth and even a friendly slap upside the head once in a while for you, Teresa, there. Um, <laughs> the friendly <laughs> slap. But then the hugs and the warmth. We should be getting serotonin from all of our relationships and a lot of our activities. Serotonin is the long-term healthy thing that our brain says, this is really good. Keep doing this because it's so healthy. Most of us don't get serotonin in our relationships or in our lifestyle. And then we end up depressed and anxious and don't understand why. So we take three, four, five medications to manage what is really existing in our body and in our relationships. Right. This reminds me of like how you talk about how like sometimes men when they hate each other just have to like, (laughs) like wrestle and, and fight, like really fight each other down and then you become best friends afterwards. Um, when you were, when you were talking about the, you know, like when the emotional side is going and you like confuse it with your body, it's kind of like we're in this state of, we talk about this a lot, you know, like fight or flight, mm-hmm. but you're you're giving your body the flight. You're giving us you're, you're specific connecting mission, the two. Specific 
task. When you're doing the exercise and then like if you're running from a bear, you're still going to be thinking. Your body's, you're, it's using, like I, I'm, I'm just, I have no background. I'm just flying off the cuff here. So please correct me if I'm wrong. But like you're kind of connecting. So instead of like being in fight or flight and you have nothing to do with it. Right. And you can't get down. <laughs> you have to put yourself into flight so that <laughs> it kind of. You're it, connecting it, it to an actual physical activity. The, the emotions you, with an activity. I guess. Well, if you're running from a bear, you don't have time to think about how sad you are that your boyfriend broke up with you. You have to get away from that bear. And that's, and, but that's what our brains are built for, is to prioritize physical survival over emotional pain. You just need to hit that point where the physical pain and, and discomfort really is confusing enough that your brain says, okay, I'm fighting a bear. Time to stop thinking about the feelings and let's focus on the bear until the bear is gone. And it just drains it. And you got to take it all the way down otherwise you'll spike right back up but once you take it all the way down yeah. now you're back to your logical brain and then you start processing logically all the things that just made you upset and you're like what the heck why was that up i just need to do this one thing this one thing will fix all of it and then you do that one thing and you're like wow what a great moment of insight i just had well yes that's called your logical brain and you were actually functioning as a fully logical person in that moment that's what that was that was you not your crazy brain and when the logic's restored, I mean, part, part of what we're all, all dealing with as human beings is that the reason we get into fight or flight mode, the reason that we get stressed out is precisely because I mean, we have a lot of rewiring to do, you know, the, the way that we relate. I mean, we have we have attachment issues. We are our hearts are attracted to the things they ought to not to be attracted to. And they're afraid of things they oughtn't be afraid of. And so that's again, that's part of this whole process of growing in virtue that that. Um, you're, you're, it's not just that you're thinking differently and you're acting differently, but you are training yourself to, f to feel and relate, uh, to emotionally respond rightly to reality as it is. But in the short term, again, as you're saying, what do you do when you're all stressed out? You can't fix that in the moment. That's a long-term process. So in the moment, as you say, you have to have this way of de-escalating it so you can get back to thinking rationally again. So. Yep. Absolutely. That's so exactly what kind of advice... So I have six kids, 10 and under. And one of my biggest issues is that I can't get away or I don't have choice, right? So if everyone genuinely needs me, <laughs> you know, this isn't just like they're, you know, just being rowdy children, but you're having a lot of emergencies going on all at once. And, you know, with little kids, everything's an emergency. So I'm not being drawn into the emergency, but the stress, like if I, if I hang out around my kids and everybody's intense and then I go to the bathroom, I notice that like, I like was really holding a lot. So like, how do I, mm. how do I get out of the stress when the, I can't leave the stress, I guess, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or mm -hmm. does that make sense mm -hmm. as a mom? I did, you know, you're yes, not a mom, but as yes, a parent, <laughs> um, not okay. being, not being a mom, but having a wife, um, Yes, it is the physical paces. So it can be as simple as taking 10 minutes if you can. If, if you have a moment in the middle of the day, if someone can watch your kids for you for 10 minutes, um, running on a treadmill and running your heart out for 10 minutes until you're just like ready on a treadmill. It can be going in the other room and tensing and relaxing your arms and then doing deep breathing in between. A lot of times when we're agitated 
anticipated our, our lungs don't want to inflate all the way because our abdomen is, is tensed mm-hmm. up. So making yourself take those deeper breaths tells your brain, hey, I'm not in danger. I'm actually okay. Um, and fills and floods you with oxygen. Um, that can help. And then tensing and relaxing a different muscle group each time. For me, it's arms and, and fists all the way down and then relax and deep breathing the whole time through. Um, you will feel your brain begin letting go and, be, and the agitation will subside. You'll find that you're being able to move in and out of thoughts much easier it is Mm -hmm. the physical body you must go into your physical body and you must do it and you can even teach your kids this in front of them and say okay i'm stressing out we need to have a wild dance party we are turning on wild dance music and we're gonna (laughs) dance like crazy people until we're falling down because we're so exhausted and you do that and you dance your heart out right this is what was that what was that goofy um exercise routine back in the day was a tai bo or something where you'd be like kickboxing <laughs> dancing and doing all kinds yeah. of like and it'd be on every commercial that that just running your body to you are like panting and breathing hard you will feel emotionally better and if you don't mm-hmm. quite then you haven't hit the endurance phase hit the point where you're just dog tied and you have to push through and then push through and then pause and then do it again hit, you're still in the endurance phase take a brief rest 20 30 seconds and do it again and keep going and, and do that four or five times stay in the endurance phase and pause four or five times and do it and then pause and do it and pause and do it and pause your brain will say well, okay I'm fighting the bear it's time to fight the bear turn the feelings off come back and you will feel Hmm. yourself coming down by the end of a couple of songs if that's the case that can help um dance the crazies away was that was that a raffy song dance dance the something (laughs) probably (laughs) that's Uh, awesome thank you yeah well we're we're at the bottom of the hour and so we don't want to keep it longer than that adam but thank you so much for sharing and for the tips and the advice and the can you you can you give where we can find you again yeah Oh, absolutely. The best place right now to find me is on Instagram. I am at Attachment Adam. I have so many cool things on there to show you guys. Um, I do coaching. You can DM me on there. If you're interested in any kind of coaching, that's the place to find me is Instagram right now. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Adam, so much. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Elevate Ordinary. I hope it was uh, an encouragement uh, and uh, an inspiration to you. We'd love to know what you think, so be sure to let us know. And um, and again, as I said at the beginning, go to elevateordinary.com for more information about the show and the archives and uh, our patron community and all that. But uh, that was... Uh, that was really That's good awesome. stuff. It's, it's, it's so yeah. interesting sometimes to encounter, uh, again, other people. And, and it's like, oh, we've been talking about this for years. We just didn't have the words, the yeah. phrases. Yeah. And so it's nice to be able to kind of put flesh on the, on the skeleton. So that's really good. Uh, thanks again for joining us. We'll talk to you again next week. God bless.